Understanding what's happening in a national labor market of over 160 million people is no small task. Every day, tens of thousands of people leave jobs, start jobs, or advance at roles at their current companies. Over time, these companies rise, fall, grow, and transform in response to demand or supply shifts for the services and goods they provide to the world. Throughout his career, Matt Sigelman has provided leadership and value by helping workers, businesses, and government understand labor market information. During his 19-year tenure as CEO of MZ Burning Glass, now Lightcast, Sigelman built capacity for researchers, policymakers, educators, and employers to understand our labor market in motion and to help Americans make more informed decisions about talent, hiring, and the future of work. Recently, he's taken his energy and expertise to found the Burning Glass Institute with the goal of unlocking new avenues for mobility, opportunity, and equity through skills. Can you respond or you respond? Matt Sigelman, thanks for joining us on Hardly Working. It's great to be together. It is really great to be here uh, with you, and I'm so appreciative um, both of the work you do and the time that you took um, uh, to come and uh, sit down with me. Really admire the work that you're doing, um, and I, and it's something that we rely on a lot in our research and analysis, and I think the audience will be really interested in hearing um, about that as well. So, um, can you trace back uh, your educational and career pathway? Um, I find that most people don't wind up where they thought they were going to, but I'd like to hear about your journey. Well, I have no idea if I had any rec- if I had any sense for where I would go. I certainly didn't expect to be where I am today. But um, you know, I I grew up in New York in the 1980s, um, at a time when um, the city was perhaps even more than today, kind of a undisputed economic capital of uh, or of the U.S. if not the world. Um, but at the same time, a city that was was riven with uh, tremendous. Uh, social problems. Uh, and so uh, when I went to college, I, I wanted to study public policy um, and uh, really enjoyed the ability to bring many different lenses together in studying uh, some of the key problems that, we're, that, that face us um, and in being able to figure out where solutions may lie. Um, I, where did you go to school? I was at Princeton. Um, and, uh, after, uh, after school, I wound up like so many legions of, of, uh, of graduates of elite schools at a management consulting house. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, uh, which I really consider more than anything else to be part of my education. Mm-hmm. Um, because, uh, I, I really didn't have for, for all of my, uh, high ideals and, uh, and, and long hours of study, I had actually very little idea um, of how business works, um, and of how change happens. Uh, and so, um, I was very naive, very idealistic. I still don't understand why I wasn't fired. Um, but, um, I, uh, managed to survive. Uh, and that's also where I fell in love with data as a means to solving problems. Uh, I was, uh, I came to, uh, have at the time I thought it was a, a really unfortunate reputation as being the guy you called if, uh, if you needed to manipulate big data sets, I, I learned, and this will date me here. 
I learned Microsoft Access, uh, and so um, you know I was I was that guy. Um, so bunch of uh, projects that, that I wound up taking on. And, and uh, that was unfortunate for me at the time because I had this picture of a management consultant as a guy with a, with a hard hat and a clipboard and walking around a factory. Uh, and of course, doing a lot of work in financial services and, and other industries. That is not my image of a management consultant. Which well, is I told you I was naive. <laughs> some guy sitting in a conference room with a bunch of executives well, yes, yeah, exactly. working through problems. On and, PowerPoint. Yeah. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, you know, that, the, those first few years out of college and in careers, it's, it really is so critically important, Yes, you know, like sort of, um, you're learning, I mean, you're on such a steep learning curve, right? It's not just the content that you're learning, but all of the, like, how does, how does work work? Um, Exactly. And it's, it's one of the things that worries me today about, um, the move to this, um, remote economy. I think on the one hand, um, there's a lot to like about uh, opening access to, to jobs to people in rural communities that mm-hmm. um, have been increasingly shut out of, of economic growth. Um, there's a lot to like about being able to tap a broader uh, set of talents and uh, a more diverse set of talents for, for various kinds of jobs. Um, but part of work is, uh, is the potential to grow. Part of work is having effective mentorship. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when we remove that from the equation, mentorship doesn't happen over Zoom um, nearly as effectively as it happens over the proverbial water cooler. Um, that is something that, that um, has the potential to disrupt careers. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it's the whole caught, not taught kind of mm-hmm. uh, thing that you get out of in-person interaction that you, it's really very difficult to get yes. virtually. Uh, we we just actually published a study on this. I don't know if you looked at it, but uh, we asked younger workers about what they prioritize. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was interesting because they said two things that seem to be opposed, but I don't think are. One was uh, we really want flexibility in our jobs, mm-hmm. and we don't care at all about remote work. Um and so they've got something, younger workers have something else in mind when they talk about flexibility on the job. And it isn't about, I want to, you know, work out of my one bedroom apartment. Um, I, I think that's right. And I think we've, we've tended to oversimplify um, the kinds of changes that we're seeing um, coming out of the pandemic. In a lot of ways, um, what we're seeing is actually not new, but a set of desires that just gone unrealized for a long period of time. Um, we recently released uh, something called the American Opportunity Index. And as part of that, which is an effort to use data to measure um, uh, America's 250 biggest companies based upon uh, the level of mobility that their workers experience. Um, we tracked the careers of 303 million people. But one of the things that we did along the way is we surveyed um, a large number of workers. We surveyed 500 workers. So in addition to watching what happened to them in the course of these 3 million career histories, we spoke to about 500 workers and, and asked them what were the dimensions of opportunity that were most important to them. Um, and um, similarly, we, we sort of expected to hear um, the, the one that's traditionally been the biggest focus of, of HR departments, which is pay. Mm-hmm. Um, Certainly pay was very important to the workers yeah. we spoke to, but 
um, only slightly above um, having a uh, clear visibility to to a path to promotion and access to the kind of training that would help people get there. So I think uh, when we understand what you just described as flexibility in a more nuanced way, mm-hmm. yes, in some cases that's um, that's geographic flexibility um, for a whole set of, uh, of workers that's also just simple stuff, which would seem to be simple stuff, like being able to have a consistent set of hours mm-hmm. to set those hours for yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of it is about... Um, really having the keys to mobility. Yeah. It's interesting in our, in our survey data, uh, that, that clearly came through of, um, I think what particularly this is, I'm thinking mostly about younger workers, but what they seem to mean by flexibility is it's learning broadly framed, right? It's learning the ethos of the, of what it means to be in the workplace it is the fact that they're managing a really heavy cognitive load in terms of both career and personal life because they're still finishing education or they're starting a family or whatever uh, is all the other things that you have to do when you're young. And I think that we older people forget how demanding that first 10 years of work really yeah. is. Um, so, um, yeah, it's fascinating stuff. Our, our sample was about 5,000. And so Fantastic. we got a really deep, mm-hmm. uh, a deep look. And we're going to be going further on that with some narrative interviews um, with some of the participants mm-hmm. to understand it Fantastic. even more. Um, so uh, going back to your own vocational journey, um, people usually have someone or someones that they look back and say, that person was really important. Or the, the, these people were really important. Who were the big influences on your career development? Um, so there were a few. Um, I'd say um, for me, one of the um, uh, one of the biggest inspirations for me is has always been uh, my brother, mm. um, who is a, uh, you know, been multiply successful in a number of endeavors. And, and I think sort of pushed me to think about um, business as a uh, as a landscape where one could actually um, make headway in, in, in both addressing and finding solutions for thorny problems. Um, and, uh, he continues to be a, an inspiration for me today. Um, I also, uh, had the privilege of working, uh, along the way, um, with people at various parts of my, at various stages in my career, um, who, who influenced some of that direction early on. Um, I was, um, lucky to work with, uh, with some folks who, who really encouraged me to see uh, data not just as being uh, something to be worked through, not just as a way to come up with a statistic, but as actually a um, a core solution, a mm-hmm. core dimension of solution. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's been a theme that stayed with me throughout my career. And then uh, later on, um, I uh, had the, uh, the, the privilege of having the mentorship of um, some phenomenally successful um, CEOs. Uh, one of them uh, uh, is running a, a public company today and, uh, and who also really um, thinks passionately about, um, about opportunity um, and about mobility in society and has encouraged me to not just sort of think about um, the problem I'm solving, but the problem I should be solving. Hmm. 
Hmm. So, uh, you know, AEI is a think tank, and we care a lot about data. Uh, it really matters, I agree, mm -hmm. uh, in terms of our understanding. Um, do you ever feel like you get trapped inside data uh, in a way that um, can limit your uh, your understanding or perspective of, of what's going on? You easily could. Um, and I think actually it's, it's interesting to see how um, demand for data skills themselves, by the way, has changed to reflect this. Because I think if you looked a decade ago at where data analytics skills were in high demand, they were tended to be in, in statistical occupations. Um, today, we're actually seeing data skills across a broad array of roles mm -hmm. um, because data has become a tool. Mm. Um, but that notion that we have to look at data as a means to an end, mm. uh, again, that idea that, that I've been lucky to have mentors who've, who have uh, highlighted for me that we have to say, what's the fundamental problem that we're solving, whether that be a commercial problem or a social problem, and then figure out what are the data that we need, um, what are the insights that we need, um, and how do we render them, um, that makes sure that you have a true north in the analysis that you're undertaking. Mm. So um, it's been a busy time for you in the last few years of uh, founding things, merging things, creating things. Tell us about that. Yeah, so uh, I, about 20 years ago, uh, um, took on uh, the company, which is uh, now called Lightcast, uh, which for a number of years was Burning Glass, and then MZ Burning Glass, uh, and, uh, and now Lightcast, and, and I think uh, coming together and, and continuing to do phenomenal things. Our breakthrough innovation was the idea that you could understand uh, the labor market with a great deal more uh, granularity um, and timeliness than had previously been possible. Uh, the idea was that instead of uh, taking a 20th century approach to being able to, to study the market, which is to say, um, develop a bunch of survey-based instruments, you say, you know, okay, well, it's not possible for us to look at the whole market, and so we'll, we'll create a survey and we'll extrapolate from the survey. Instead, in a 21st century context where most transactions happen online, you could actually comprehensively, effectively survey the whole market by collecting millions of job postings every day, by studying uh, tens of millions of people's career histories each year. Um, and so that uh, really opened up a, a whole uh, array of, of uh, new, uh, new analyses and new effectiveness in the market. Um, you've got today, uh, I think about 1,500 colleges and universities, for example, which are using granular data about what's going on in the market to be able to figure out, um, are they teaching what they need to teach or the skills that are being taught in classrooms, the skills that are being sought in by industry, figuring out what kind of programs they ought to be launching, uh, figuring out how to articulate the value of those programs. List goes on similarly with, with employers, with public agencies. Um, very proud of, uh, of the kind of transformations that that core idea, that core innovation, and this massive data set has brought to bear. Um, and very glad to, to bring, to join forces with some others in the industry um, who had something very complementary 
uh, uh, capability sets and, and uh, form, again, what's called today Lightcast. Mm-hmm. Um, at the end of last year, I decided it was, it was time to, uh, to launch something else and it had been in my mind for a number of years. Um, and so left to launch with uh, a fully independent uh, nonprofit called the Burning Glass Institute. And our mission is to, um, to advance data-driven, both research and practice, on the future of work, the future of workers, and the future of learning. Fundamentally, uh, we believe that skills uh, can be a critical unlock for growing opportunity, for um, increasing prosperity, and for boosting equity in the job market. Um, And so I wanted to be able to focus on not just producing the data and the software that can empower people to act effectively, but actually filling, uh, but taking those data, building on top of the the fabulous insights that those data unlock, and uh, actually being able to drive transformations. So I'd like to go in a little bit of depth here on the big data question mm-hmm. uh, and um, particularly the relationship between big data and the way that that is being enabled by artificial intelligence and machine learning. And I'd like to hear a, bit, a little bit about how this is, how you think this is transforming the field um, that you're working in. So it's, it's interesting. The field that, um, that we've pioneered um, is often referred to as real-time labor market information. But I actually think it's, uh, it's a bit of a misnomer. It's not a misnomer because it's not real-time. It is. Um, we can see, you know, uh, job opening activity from yesterday and, and, mm-hmm. and at any given point in time. But the real value of these new methods is the granularity that they provide. The ability to do more than, um, uh, than just track the economy, but to actually act upon it and to empower, um, whether it be uh, companies, educators, uh, people in the public sphere, to not only have insights, but to have the keys to be able to bring new efficiency to the market. That depends upon um, not just the monthly job numbers, how many jobs were created last month or whatever it is, um, not just being able to see broad secular, uh, sectoral trends, but being able to get down to the granularity of understanding um, specifically what are the sets of jobs that are going unfilled, um, what are the skills it takes to, uh, to prepare people for them, what are the sets of workers who could move into those jobs, and what are the learning bridges that they need to pass by. And so increasingly, um, what the kind of data that, um, that I've dedicated my career to producing are doing is they are providing a level of actionability and, and predictiveness that um, I'd like to believe are driving new efficacy in the market. So when you uh, let's let's then shift into the actual market and talk about what's going on in the job market. So give us the landscape picture first. What do you when you look out at the horizon, what are the things that if they don't keep you up at night, um, at least you regard them as the key opportunities and challenges that um, the U.S. labor market currently has and and will have in the future? So the notion of transformation in the job market is not new. 
Um, there's always been sets of transformations that go on in the market that in a lot of ways reflect the life cycles of sectors. There are sets of occupations that are born, there are jobs that die away. Um, more recently, we've seen a, a lot from um, jobs being automated away, jobs going offshore. Um, and I think that continues to drive a lot of the discourse around um, what people refer to as the future of work. In reality, we're seeing right now a different set of transformations. They're transformations that are no less profound, but they're actually harder to see. Hmm. Um, we recently uh, studied the changing skill demands of jobs. Um, and we found that the average U.S. job has had 37% of its top 20 skills replaced just in the last five years. Now, um, that's a, a profound kind of transformation when you think so about can it. Can you make that just speci more specific? What, does that, what so, does that mean for So it means that almost four out of 10 skills that you used five years ago are no longer being used today. So what, what would be some of the skills that we were using five years ago that we're not using anymore? So, um, for example, in the world of, um, of insurance claims, um, their uh, insurance claims clerks used to do a lot of um, form filling. They used to do um, a lot of um, processing tasks. Most of that's been automated. And so increasingly those roles are uh, almost functioning as kind of junior underwriters in a way. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a lot more analytical work that's mm -hmm. going on. Production technicians increasingly are having to have um, process, uh, uh, process quality skills, uh, quality QA skills, um, automation skills that they didn't before. Think about um, all your friends in marketing. Right. Um, marketing people, marketing people I know went into marketing because they're right brain people. They communicate well. They're told they understand people's messages well. Um, marketing people today need to be able to manipulate customer data. Hmm. That's a totally different set of skills. And I think that's a good example as well, because we tend to think about, hey, 37 percent of skills of a job get replaced. Uh, well, you know, there's technology stacks change, you learn a new technology, no big deal. But the kind of transformations that we're talking about in a lot of cases are being driven by this spreading of skills across mm. domains. Mm. Um, you know, increasingly jobs are requiring people to wear multiple different hats that don't normally get one on the same head. That's a big challenge for the market. Mm. First of all, just think about this four and 10 thing. Right? It's a challenge for workers and it's a challenge for employers and it's a challenge for educators who are designed who are trying to prepare workers for jobs um, across all three of those right if I'm uh, first of all ask yourself this is is th has 37 percent of the curriculum of your average community college changed over the last five years of course not mm -hmm. um, it also means to your point for workers the job that I may have been working in for decades I may no longer be prepared to do going forward um, and that's why I said this is a, a much more, um, uh, it, it's, it's a much harder change to see, but no less disruptive um, than, and perhaps more so than what we're used to hearing about. It's, it's really, not that jobs are going away, but right. it, what it takes to do them is, is going, is changing. Right. It's sort of internal transformation of the job rather than the job exactly. was here and now it's not here. That's right. Um, so how are 
uh, how are workers and employers dealing with this? So I think um, part of this, to some extent, explains some of the kinds of shortages that we see today. Um, because in, in some areas of the economy, um, there's a disjoint between the skills that employers need and the skills that workers have. Um, we also know that there's an inherent inefficiency in the economy today as well, because um, you could say, okay, well, why don't employers just train people in these sets mm-hmm. of skills? Mm-hmm. Um, but the vicious cycle that, that's been begotten in the economy over the last uh, several decades is an increasingly transactional um, a, a set of relationships between employers and workers. Um, the, how that bears out is that, uh, you know, employers have on the one hand, the flexibility to be able to hire and fire at will as, as, uh, they move through economic cycles, but workers reciprocate. Um, in fact, I think viewed from that lens, one could say that the so-called great resignation is just the extension of that trend in a, in a seller's market. Uh, I agree completely. I think it's, uh, you, if you treat workers as a commodity, long enough, they'll start to treat jobs as commodities. Uh, And uh, that that lack of reciprocity in the sense of commitment to one another actually is working against uh, everybody's interests. So, And here's why I think that's so important in a time of great skill change. Mm. Because um, if people leave after 12, 18, 24 months, it's hard for employers to get a return on investment in training people up. Um, and so we wind up with uh, this environment where um, employers aren't investing in workers because they think they're going to go. Um, and workers, um, to what our conversation before, are leaving um, quickly precisely because they don't necessarily see a path to a better future at the employer they're with. That was another aspect of our survey, which really uh, was very clear from the data that if employers, you know, you were talking earlier about, you know, everything being reduced to pay. Mm -hmm. uh, And yet when you look at sort of the factors that helped slow turnover, it isn't really pay that does that. It turns out that it's, you know, a host of things relating to development on the job, basically. You know, if it workers feel like they're part of a team, their boss likes them, respects them, and is concerned about their career trajectory, all those things, they're a lot less likely to be out in the market looking for something new. Um, if you get all, and that's the, like, that's, to me, that's the employer side of this. It's like, what, how do employers conceive of retention uh, and what works in retention strategy? It, there's a huge gap between companies who are doing this well and are not. Uh, one of the things we found in our American Opportunity Index, uh, one of the dimensions that we looked at of, of opportunity creation was, uh, was in, in employee retention. We found that top quintile companies we're holding on to twice as many um, of their employees as uh, bottom quintile companies, um, which, you know, at a time when everyone's scrambling for talent to realize that you could have, um, uh, I think it was something like a 73% retention rate versus a 38% retention rate um, is, is tremendous. And I think for companies that are doing a better job of holding on to their workers, one of the things that they realize is that people need to be able to 
um, both have uh, visibility to where they can go with the career of the company, and they need the tools to know how to get there. Um, and um, a lot of companies have on paper the right stuff, but they aren't necessarily signposting it for workers. Mm-hmm. And so workers aren't availing the kind of programs that are there. Instead, they're creating like chief happiness officers and exactly. having pizza parties. Um, the, the, the ping pong table is, yeah. is not um, going to get people ahead. And, and what we learned from this work is that workers are smart. Mm-hmm. Uh, workers are thinking about both uh, what's, uh, yes, how, you know, what's the opportunity today and what kind of pay can I get, but also um, how do I think about my future? How do I think about my future pay and about my future opportunity? And, uh, you know, I, I think workers vote accordingly. Um, what, what employers are going to get me ahead? So I don't know if you saw this study, but it's one that really intrigued me. Um, uh, that we typically in a recession, most recessions, we see substitution of uh, labor and we see people shifting between sectors, but we haven't seen as much of that, at least in this one study I was looking at. And, and instead, what we've seen is kind of this almost a hydraulic effect of people moving from, you know, entry level hourly wage jobs into salaried positions, or they're moving from uh, those positions into blue collar jobs or up into management. And that it almost looks like, and I'm just wondering if this has been reflected in your data, that employers are kind of, they're learning too out of this tight labor market and saying we need to make more out of what we've got uh, and looking to their incumbent workforces as resources to be developed and trained and moved up the chain is that do you see that happening necessity is the mother of invention uh and i think there's a lot of positive things that are shaking out of um the albeit very painful labor Mm -hmm. shortages that that companies are finding themselves confronting today Mm -hmm. um when things are going along merrily you don't need a lot of introspection you don't need to um study very analytically what your practices are and what's Mm -hmm. working and what's not um when uh, when the market becomes tight, when you can't find the talent you need, when you're producing less stuff because you have fewer people to do the work, um, you start asking important and difficult questions about whether you're tripping on your own shoelaces. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are a bunch of ways in which we tend to do that. Uh, for example, um, one of the things that uh, companies have long done is, is relied um, very singularly on, on degrees in their hiring. Um, okay, well, we're going to pick the person who's got the college degree. Um, there's a lot of data out there that says that's not necessarily your best pick. There's a lot of careers where um, you're going to get greater uh, loyalty um, and greater performance from somebody who doesn't have the degree and who's not necessarily uh, got one foot out the door the whole time. Um, well, when you can't find people, you suddenly start to say, okay, did, did we need to hire for that degree? Um, I think one of the other ways that uh, the market is changing now is that, um, is to your point, employers are saying, okay, how do we, how do we hold on to people? Um, And that requires a significant mindset shift. Uh, On the one side, on the one hand, it it seems fairly, uh, fairly self-evident, right? Okay, well, uh, great, it would be better if I held on to people. But 
here's the mindset shift you've got to make. You've got to be able to see people not for the current job that they're doing, but for the job they could be doing mm-hmm. tomorrow. It's, a, it's, it's uh, to look at today's accounting clerk and say, that could be my cybersecurity analyst tomorrow. That takes a different way of thinking about your talent base. Instead of thinking, well, if I need that, I'm just going to go out into the market and pluck that person and bring them inside my organization. That person may not exist. So having a little imagination uh, about your current, your existing workforce um, is really important. You know, it's, it's fascinating to me. Uh, there is uh, not a um, factor of production that's out there today that companies don't have sophisticated supply chain uh, designs for how to procure, right? You wouldn't say, hey, we're going to produce, uh, if you were GM, you're going to say, hey, look, we're, we're producing a, a quota of Silverados this month. Um, let's see if there's somebody out there who will sell us some seats. Mm. Uh, right, you know, you've, you've that's that spec uh, has been sent out, you right. know, probably 18 months in advance. Everything's yeah. been procured. There's APIs that, that send the data across. But yet when it comes to the single biggest factor of production, mm-hmm. In uh, for most companies in today's economy, um, their it's talent stance. It's, it's ad hoc. Right? It's on the spot market. Yeah. Um, but I think we're going to see um, a, a, a the pendulum start to swing back to the way we talked uh, a minute ago about uh, this uh, this very transactional, very casual mm-hmm. um, set of uh, approach to the job market that both. Uh, that's that's really defined the relationships both for workers and I just and characterize players. it as being a ruthlessness uh, of the relationship. You know, uh, anyway, but. I, I um, and I think that's probably not wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, it does cut both ways, um, or you know, you, you you reap what you sow. But mm-hmm. uh, but but here's why I think it starts to swing back. To your point, one of the things that we're finding now is that work is getting more complex. You know, we were talking about how there's this kind of hybridization of, mm-hmm. of skills across jobs, um, of the marketing person who needs data. Well, the more that jobs blend different sets of skills, the more complex they get, the harder it is to find exactly what you're looking for. As you said a minute ago, that person who's got um, all of those skills put together probably doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. And recruiters like to call that a purple squirrel, <laughs> you know, a, or a pink unicorn, or, right. or something other, uh, something right. else that's mythical. Um, and so, if that's the case, then um, the notion that you can just buy it on the spot market starts to get called into question, and employers start to realize, wait a second, we're going to need to invest mm-hmm. um, toward building those talent sets from within. And when you do that, you're going to be a lot more jealous about not letting people leave. Right. Really working at that um, as a core business practice. Exactly. Yeah. Thinking of your labor force as a core business um, factor. Um, Wow. So many interesting potential um, rabbit trails to go down. And I've got you here and I just want to ask all of these questions. What do you um, what do you make of the labor shortage per se in terms of its durability? Uh, you know, is this cyclical? 
is it uh, secular, uh, just a, you know something that we're going to be grappling with and dealing with from here on out? I, MZ did a great report on this before mm-hmm. you guys uh, merged with them uh, on uh, the demographic drought. That's right. Yeah. What's your take on that? So I think um, there's, uh, we talk about skill gaps and I think different skills have different gaps. Um, so helpful to start off sort of thinking about what are the, the causes that we see across many of them. Um, and that will give us some clues as to which ones um, resolve in recession um, and which ones are here to stay. Uh, so, you know, what I, I would, uh, certainly a lot of what we've seen over the last couple of years, particularly as we've climbed out of the extremely deep hole of the initial days of the pandemic, has been um, a, a huge spike in demand. There's been a lot of questioning of where do the workers go and whatever, but actually, you know, we're, we're back up to full strength of the, uh, of the workforce. Um, and yes, we have lost a lot of workers along the way, but um, but really the bigger story there has been, there's been a tremendous growth in demand and some of that will continue. And I think that's frankly why we haven't seen a lot of slowdown in job creation. Um, even as the economy seems to be giving indications of, of potentially entering recession, because there's a lot of sectors out there, particularly in the services side, um, which are continuing to rebound. Um, some of that comes out in the wash. Um, when should we enter a recession, right? So, um, you know, if, um, if you're waiting uh, 15 minutes now for a table at your favorite restaurant because there aren't servers, um, well, yeah, I think, you know, as fewer people go and eat out, then, uh, then that, that solves itself um, fairly well. But longer term, I think there's a couple of issues that um, we need to be mindful of. One is, as my former colleagues uh, documented so effectively, um, we are seeing a, a demographic drought. Um, just look at the demographic trends, um, and it's easy to see that um, you know we uh, our population is is uh, is slowing down to our population growth is slowing down to a trickle. Um, we don't seem to have the political will. To, uh, to address immigration reform that might be needed to bring new talent into the country. Um, and so at some level, um, the kind of workforce expansion that would be needed in a linear economic growth pattern just isn't there. Um, do you think the, what do you, I mean, our labor force participation rate um, mm-hmm. is not as right. bad. Is there, do you, do you hold that much hope for kind of pulling some of those people back into the, into the labor force or? I, I think there's still a lot of open questions as to why people um, are at home. And there's a lot of speculation uh, about some of the different kinds of causes um, that may be at play. But I think the reality is that we don't know. It is true, certainly, that um, labor shortages and the wage spikes that they yield um, have some tendency to bring some people back. Um, we do know that, that uh, America's opioid epidemic certainly keeps a lot of people out. Um, there's been a high rate of, of disability mm-hmm. um, in the workforce. Um, but I think there's also been an epidemic of hopelessness. Um, and people have to see not only a paycheck, but uh, an ability to rise. And 
Um, I think if we restore some of the the mobility motor um, of the U.S. economy, if we bring new vitality to the American dream, then um, I this may be this may be romantically optimistic, but I do believe that you'll start to see a greater set of uh, a greater uh, return to work um, as people get new hope and new confidence um, that they truly can do better. And just by the way, to put some numbers, when we say that. Yeah. Um, hey, we're all worried about uh, about about questions of mobility. Um, you know, if you were born in the 1940s, uh, there was an over 90% chance that you were going to be doing better than your parents. If you were born in the 1980s, uh, that was uh, that was down to at best even odds. Hmm. So we really are seeing um, a significant slowdown in mobility, and that's a broad average because there's some parts of the country. There's some kinds of occupations where um, your chances of moving up may be much, uh, much lower, much less than that. So we've been giving a lot of thought, in particular, to the problem of male workforce participation. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, my view of this is that this is in part driven just by the changes in the skill mixes that are Mm -hmm. required um, in in the modern economy, economy, is that your take on it? Or what do you see as, uh, if not, what do you see? I, I think in addition to a demographic drought, I think um, skill mismatch, in other words, jobs needing different skills from the skills that people have, um, is going to be a uh, ongoing source of um, inefficiency in the market. Um, of, uh, on the one hand, people not finding opportunity, on the other hand, uh, companies not finding the talent that they need. Um, and I think that's going to be both at the, um, the high-skill and low-skill parts of the, uh, of the economy. Um, low-skill, I think you see, that's where you see this bear out in, in low levels of workforce participation, right? So we know that, um, that particularly among, um, among males, um, particularly among those who um, are in their late 40s, their 50s. There's a lot of people who drop out of the market because they don't have the skills to acquire new skills. Mm-hmm. Um, so we talked before about how fast skills are changing, mm-hmm. um, and there's uh, a level of agility that workers need in order to be able to acquire new skills, in order to be able to... This kind of gets to like the technical versus the non-cognitive domain. That's Is that right. what you're talking about? You know, uh, the two are... are, are much more closely linked than we tend to give credit for mm-hmm. because um, if you don't have those core foundational skills, um, then it's actually hard to acquire technical skills. Right, right. It's um, a double helix. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so um, so people start to, to drop out. And the high skill side of the spectrum, by the way, um, you also see the potential for a significant mismatch. And that's because some of the sets of skills that are most valuable, that are growing fastest in the economy, um, are hard for people to learn. Um, and we don't necessarily have an infrastructure what do you, in place for uh, people. What are the, those skills that you're talking about? Um, so, for example, if you were to look at the rates of growth for, um, I'll just give you a couple of examples of, of uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning skills for cloud skills, for product management skills, even things like social media skills, mm-hmm. they're growing extremely fast. Um, and uh, they're growing not only within specific jobs, but across occupations, across sectors, across par- um, regions in the economy. Um, and there isn't necessarily a mechanism for people to learn those kinds of things on the fly. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, that's the double helix at work, right? These are jobs that do require sort of high math, high social uh, content. Um, and it's, wow, you think it's hard to teach a technical skill, try to teach a non-cognitive skill. You don't really teach them, so. That's, by the way, one of the ironies of, uh, of today's job market and the kind of changes that are going on within it the kinds of jobs that are most data-driven, that are most tech-enabled, have the highest demand for core foundational skills. Um, they're about three times as likely as other jobs to ask for collaboration skills. They're twice as likely to ask for creativity skills. They're about 50% more likely to ask for writing and research skills. So. Um, the more uh, tech-driven something is, yeah. the more human it becomes. We certainly found that a survey we did last year uh, among STEM workers. You know, it was uh, you know this is it was built on David Deming's research. You know, and and you know the the way that skill demands over the career life cycle change so much within the STEM workforce. Yes. You know, like you ask a young STEM worker, how important is communication? They're like, it, it's irrelevant because I'm coding all day or, you know, doing some narrow technical task. Then you ask their bosses, you know, what's important. And it's like communication is so important. It's probably the most important thing that I, that I, that I have to have um, in order to do my job. And, and exactly to your point, right, the further north you go in your career, the more relative value employers place on those core foundational skills. In some ways, you know, we call them foundational, but the mental image you have of something that's foundational is kind of the bottom layer in a pyramid. Right. Um, think about right. the USDA food pyramid with right. the carbs at the bottom and the protein. Everybody, and every the, industry the has a skills the top. pyramid, right? And, and, you know, here's the thing. Um, actually, foundational skills work exactly opposite of that. Um, so there, that can't be true because I use that pyramid in every presentation. So go ahead. Tell <laughs> Hopefully me upside yeah, down. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> you can still use the same slide. Just need yeah. to flip it. Uh, but, uh, you know, look, uh, in that initial job that you take, uh, at a college and particularly as a STEM worker, you're just renting your skills. You have a high value set of skills and you're renting them yeah. out. Yeah. Um, over time in order to rise, the sets of skills that you need are increasingly foundational and, and actually um, that was one of the things that, that David found in his study of, of, of the STEM workforce um, is that um, when people first graduate in STEM fields, they're making, I think it was about a 45% premium over other graduates, which is a great deal. By the end of their first decade of work, that's down to only about a 10% premium. Mm -hmm. um, and it's because the skills are changing really fast mm -hmm. um, and uh, workers are struggling to keep up. And okay, great, you, you're keeping up, you're learning the new skills in pace with the market, but you never get a premium for your experience. Right. Um, and so people wind up leaving STEM precisely because um, the places where you can get experience, where you can exercise those foundational skills, mm -hmm. where you can build them and exercise mm -hmm. them, is in management and other kind of domains, mm -hmm. and not the, the STEM work itself. Yeah, it's something, again, in our, in our most recent survey, we, we looked at kind of social engagement in the, in the workplace and the way that that, that helps develop those kinds of skills uh, and the fact that, as Robert Putnam and others have pointed out, you know, the other opportunities to learn those things outside the workplace 
have really atrophied in American society. You know, we don't have the levels of religious participation. We don't have civic engagement like we used to. We don't have those. Those weren't just do you know things that were good for uh, society in terms of building things in society. They were like building stuff inside people that better equip them across the board for their personal lives and for their um, their life at work. And that, to me, is like the central conundrum of, of our workforce challenge is that I just don't I'm, – I'm really concerned about that atrophy because if, if you're right and these skills, these kinds of social engagement and collaboration skills are really the, the coin of the realm – uh, I, I'm really quite worried, actually, um, because I think that the roots of that atrophy go very, very far back in the developmental cycle. I think they start in infancy, uh, and, uh, and, and uh, people are rising into adulthood without ever having gotten that kind of nurture and development. I think um, there are two forces at play, and and the counter. I think you're you're entirely right that we've seen an erosion of of a lot of social structures um, that tend to nurture those skills and are very um, very fruitful grounds for nurturing those skills. Mm-hmm. Um, at the other hand, I do think that some of the kinds of things that we're talking about here, um, research and problem solving and and writing and collaboration and creativity are also the bedrocks of America's educational system. Mm-hmm. There's a lot that we want to throw out about mm-hmm. today's system that mm-hmm. we'll be polite with that we want to reform um, in today's uh, educational environment. And you'll hear lots of people talking about the German model. And, and mm-hmm. I always wonder whether we're really actually willing to start tracking seventh graders mm-hmm. um, and saying who's, who's and, actually And swapping our current problems for a different set of problems. Exactly. Um, you so. know, in my conversations in Germany, people often talk about the... <laughs> Um, uh, the, the, the strengths of the American model and, and exactly some of the things that they're pointing to are the creativity of, of American students, um, the, the collaborative structures that happen in America's classrooms. So I think as we move to a more effective um, educational system, um, we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. There's a lot of things right now which are the bedrocks of America's liberal arts heritage. We want to hold on to them but we need to make sure that it is a, um, a both and rather than either or, that we're both providing people those core foundational skills that will serve them over the course of the arc of their careers, as well as helping them acquire the more timely, more technical skills that will help them launch into careers. I mean, one, one consistent theme that I see across both education and, and workforce, particularly post-secondary education, and into the work for, and transition into the workforce, you hear about it all the time from employers, people in workforce development, is around this question of persistence. Um, you know, we're not students are not persisting in education; they're not completing the degrees that they start. They aren't persisting in uh, in training in a any in, in their particular job, uh, and. Um, Persistence, of course, is like one of these key non-cognitive skills, mm-hmm. and it may be the one that sort of activates all the other non-cognitive skills, makes them worthwhile. 
with it. What are your thoughts on persistence? The question for me is whether we're giving people a reason to persist. Mm -hmm. um, I think we tend not to do a great job of helping students um, see where various kinds of learning will take them. Mm -hmm. um, and I think particularly in uh, a world where um, so much, uh, where there's so many outlets for instant gratification, if you can't see where something's going to take you, um, it's harder to find reason to persist. But again, here too, I'm, I'm perhaps a little bit more optimistic. Um, here's the evidence which I see in terms of, not so much with students, but with workers, um, in terms of their mobility. We tend to think, uh, to hear a lot about, um, uh, about how little mobility is, uh, there is today for workers and how many people are trapped. Um, and certainly a lot of workers are falling through the cracks and are getting stuck on, on low-wage treadmills. Um, but in two sets of studies that we've done recently and now more recently with this American Opportunity Index, one of the things that has been uh, very clear is that people rise. Um, we looked uh, first in some work uh, two or so years ago that we undertook together with the Schultz Family Foundation um, looking at opportunity youth. That is, we're, uh, uh, youth who are not in school, not in a job. These should be the kinds of people uh, who are at the highest risk in the job market. And we found that when you track them over five years, at the end of a five-year longitude, um, about half, almost spot on half, uh, were working in living wage jobs. Um, same thing in some work that uh, Joe Fuller at Harvard Business School and I did uh, where we looked at um, a few hundred thousand people who were working in what people often refer to as poverty trap jobs. Um, we found it at the end of, uh, of a five-year longitude when we tracked people out, um, about four in 10 um, had again uh, sort of escaped uh, poverty. Now, we want that to be 10 of 10. Um, and we sh that's, that's the right ambition. But, uh, but that said, people are moving, um, and that doesn't happen by itself. That takes a lot of persistence. That takes a lot of gumption. Yeah. Um, and the question is then, how do we, first of all, support those people so that uh, it, it, uh, you know, they have a greater chance of moving up? And second, how do we make sure that more people than, uh, you know, that it's not four out of 10, that it's six, six of 10 or eight of 10 or, or maybe 10 of 10? So we're, uh, we are almost out of time and you've been very generous. Uh, last, uh, last question, uh, pretend that you're sitting in this room and you're actually talking with a group of uh, young people who are either in high school contemplating what their post-secondary education plan will be or they're in college and they're wrestling with majors and uh, internships and trying to find some direction in life. Um, or maybe they're an incumbent worker. Um, what, what do they need to be doing from your, from your perch? What do they need to be doing to prepare themselves for the future? The future never stops. Uh, and so what that practically means is this. First of all, for students who are looking forward to finishing, whether it be high school, college, and being done, 
um, I have bad news for them, <laughs> uh, which is that um, they're never going to be done, um, right? So I think in in a world where um, there's so much um, skill change, um, even more than job change, um, people are always going to need to be able to learn, um, and uh, that's a good thing because the distance between you and opportunity is, is skills. It's kind of like what your side view mirror tells you, the objects in the mirror are closer than they appear. Mm-hmm. Um, opportunities are closer to you than they, than they may seem. Um, you have to have your radar up. Um, you need to be uh, looking at what kinds of jobs are available, not by job categories, but by skills. Where are places where I could apply the skills I already have right now? And search engines are good. They, they help you do that. Um, and then you have to say, okay, what are the skills I don't have? Um, because you can fill them in. And increasingly, we're going to start to see, we're already seeing, um, and I think we're going to see much more of this, um, new educational structures that allow people to not uh, necessarily acquire a whole degree at a time or, or go back and acquire another degree, but to acquire those skills that fill in the blanks that let you move up. Um, mentioned before the irrepressible desire that we all have to rise. Um, and I think you know, my advice to people would be to look at skills as a mechanism for making that happen. Matt Siegelman, thank you so much it's been for so much fun. joining us. Uh, this has been terrific and look forward to having you on again soon. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working. <laughs>